Hello, hello, dear ones. Before we begin today's episode, which I am so excited for, if the length of the episode didn't give it away, I got a little carried away with this one, we've got a couple of listener limericks. If you, too, would like a funky little limerick written for you and read out in the show about an arguably PG-13 topic of your choice, you, too, can go to co-v slash backagainpodcast or click the link in the description to jump directly to the page. This first limerick is for my dear Chloe. Regarding floor time, because it's required. Floor time is good for your health, equivalent to spiritual wealth. Back to the floor when you're feeling poor, to arise as a much better self. (laughs) The second one is forever stalwart M, regarding plants. Although on the streets they do fine, they die in my house all the time. Their standards are high, and I'm just some guy. Houseplants sure do love to whine. Thank you both so, so much for donating. And on to the episode. There is a couple of content warnings for this one, though, so please check out the end of the episode description before listening. Stay safe. Back Again, Back Again presents Three times Rhea ran away, and one time she didn't. Rhea was 11 when she first snuck out of the palace. 11 is a big age even if no one talks of it as a milestone. At 11, Rhea felt she knew more about the world than she did at 17. At 11, she thought she could pluck the stars from the sky and swallow them whole. At 11, she fought with Cassian over something stupid, something borrowed without permission or stolen without repercussion, something said over dinner or in a lesson or whispered during what was meant to be private study in the library with the intention of casual cruelty. The fights were not new. They were both children of the palace in a way that was unique, even among the other children of the palace, children of soldiers or cooks or courtiers that took group lessons apart from the prince and the teacher in training and the two, because of their isolation, were raised more akin to siblings than simple friends. Fights were constant and messy and often felt irrevocably hurtful in the moment. They never were. They both hated the other a little bit, more than a little bit, in the way all siblings do when they are eleven and can pluck the stars from the sky, but the Verulins only occasionally bobbed to the surface. Most of the time, it drowned in a begrudging but fiercely protective love. This time, though whatever thing the fight had been over was lost to the annals of time, the way Rhea reacted to it was not. She was certain Cassian had started it. And she was certain she was justifiably bellicose in the way all siblings are when one sibling, or close enough, pushes the other's buttons just one too many times. All of the small injustices Cassian had committed against her over the years, calling her names or barging into her room or stealing her coursework, bubbled up and up and up and became a part of whatever this current fight was about. She did remember this. She was in Cassian's bedroom. Her ears burned hot with anger. She punched him in the teeth. 
Bria had one glorious second of divine vengeance. Cassian doubled over, hands clutching his mouth, before she realized what she'd done and how she hadn't actually wanted to hurt him. Not like this, not this badly, but this was not an action that she could take back. His face crumpled. Tears began. Rhea could not undo what she had done, and so instead she turned on her heel and ran through the palace, heart pounding, feeling sick and sick and sick. If she was selfless, she would have run to tell her teacher what she'd done and find Cassian help. If she were brave, she would have told the kings, but Rhea was, in that moment, neither. She did not run towards the kings or her teacher, the one that had taught her and Cassie the language of the book, the closest thing to a mother that she had, who would have been the most understanding to the way siblings fought, for she had grown up beside the queen just as Rhea did now the prince, but from, maybe, away. Chest tight, hands shaking, and her vision half blurred from her own tears, she flew towards the stables and out past the dozing stable hands, and out and out and out into the back, into the woods, along the paths best illuminated by the stars. It would have been cold if she had slowed down enough to notice. It would have been dark, a forest late at night, if she had not been so distraught over what she had done. Unfortunately, being eleven, even when you felt powerful at eleven, meant that you were still at the mercy of your own actions and the punishments of adults. Being able to swallow the stars did not mean that they would not burn your throat on the way down. She stumbled to a stop at the edge of a small village, situated somewhere between the end of the woods that surrounded the back of the palace and the dregs of the metropolis that had dumped itself before the palace steps. She could not remember the last time she'd been on her own. She wasn't sure she remembered the way back home. She wasn't sure. The image of Cassian, tears falling freely and blood on his fingers still burned into her brain, that she could bear it to go home. Maybe, Rhea thought to herself, finally starting to feel the cold. I can live here now, for forever. There was a friendly sort of glow casting flickering shadows along the small buildings, and Rhea followed them towards the village heart. She hadn't even made it to the center before a small girl materialized at her side. She was a few shades lighter of a brown than Rhea, and her hair, almost the same shade of messy brown as her skin and curly, was pulled up onto the top of her head in the sort of messy way that Rhea knew meant that she'd done it herself after haughtily refusing the help of an adult. She squinted at Rhea in the flickering half-shadow. Rhea, unsure, halted before her. For a terrible, horrible second, she was certain the girl was about to say, why did you punch the prince in the mouth? But instead, the other girl said, you're not from here. Rhea blinked. How did the girl know? She'd lived in the palace her entire life, and she didn't know all of the people there by name or face, and somehow the other girl just knew? A about her? She straightened. Maybe I am. But you're not, said the girl smoothly. It wasn't an accusation. She almost sounded amused. Intrigued. 
Maybe I'm visiting someone who lives here. Maybe I'm the cousin of someone who lives here. But you're not, the girl insisted again and smiled in a way that was almost too clever for an 11-year-old. Maybe while Rhea had been waiting to pluck the stars, this girl had been learning to steal them instead. I could be. You're not, the girl repeated. Because if you were, you'd be sitting with every other child in this village. She spat the word, child, as if she didn't include herself as part of the denomination, though Rhea was almost certain she was listening to my mother's act stories. Was that what was going on in the village center? Voices did play on the edge of her hearing, echoing around corners raucously and joyfully. Rhea folded her arms. Then why are you... She said you in a way that, in no uncertain terms, marked this girl as part of the aforementioned children. Not listening, too. The girl rolled her eyes. Because, she began, the word because so exaggerated that it, in no uncertain terms, marked Rhea as a fool. I live with them. I can recite this story word for word. It's boring. She held up a finger cocked her head to listen, and then said, in perfect cadence and pitch with the echoes from round the corner, I will never go with you, foul beast. I will fight against you until my very last. Rhea stood. Shocked. And the girl shocked. I did not say they were clever storytellers. I just said they acted stories. So you wander around in the dark instead. The girl sighed. I was looking for something more interesting to do. She said was in a way that, in no uncertain terms, told Rhea she'd found it. Where are you from, girl at the edge of the dark? My name is Rhea, she said. Her stomach twisted in a way that made her nearly throw up at this girl's feet when she thought of the palace, and then her not-quite-sibling, and then the reason she had run away in the first place. Suddenly, she wanted to apologize to Cassie, and even if it meant he punched her in the teeth back, could he forgive her? For this one? She hoped so. He'd done worse things to her. She'd do worse things back before they were both grown up. She just didn't know that she could face the kings and her teacher. I'm from... I'm from... She swallowed. My name is Rhea. I ran away from my house. The girl squinted into the darkness behind her. Without your parents? I don't have parents, stupid! Rhea snapped. The girl huffed. Everyone has parents. Just because you ran away doesn't mean you don't have parents. No, Bria insisted. Not me. I am the teacher to the Alihida to come. I don't have parents. I have guardians and teachers. The girl went very, very still. She seemed to notice for the first time. Rhea's frilly dress and slippered feet. Oh, 
she said, very carefully. Ah. Well, if you've never had parents before, you won't think mine are strange. I think they'd like to meet you. Then she grinned, almost deviously, up at Rhea. My name is Iolo, you know. It is nice to meet you, Rhea. Iolo seemed to take great pleasure in interrupting the performances of her mother's. She barged into the middle of the circle the children sat in, dragging Rhea by the sleeve, and announced, gleefully, This story has to stop right now! I found a lost girl. One of her mothers, who was down on her hands and knees pretending to be some sort of animal, sat back onto her ankles, looking more than a little put out. Iolo's other mother, who had been brandishing a very large stick like a sword, dropped it to the ground, coming over and falling to a knee beside Rhea. She was impressively tall, this woman, towering over Rhea when on her feet, who, even at eleven, was heads and tails taller than Cassie and was fast creeping up on passing her teacher, but she had a kind face and gentle eyes. Iolo, she called, her voice slow and smooth. Go home and bring me a blanket. She's frozen through. Iolo jutted out her lower lip, then opened her mouth wide as if she were about to make another proclamation, but her first mother sat back on her heels, made a warning humming sound that had obviously occurred enough that Iolo snapped her mouth shut and trotted towards a small house at the far edge of the fire. What is your name? asked the other mother, the one before Rhea burying Rhea's cold hands in her big ones. Are you truly lost? Or is our child putting on her own performance? Rhea squirmed, unsure how to answer about whether or not she were truly lost. On the one hand, yes. On the other, she thought she might want to stay lost a little longer if it meant the king's anger at her punching Cassian turned, instead, to a mild panic at her absence that would make them far more likely to forgive her. She hadn't been hugged by either of them for quite some time. She could almost imagine it, though them leaping down from their horses and wrapping her in their arms. We'd been so scared, the king would say, and he'd swing her around like he'd done to her and Cassian when they were young. We're just glad you're all right, the queen would say, and smooth down her hair to kiss her forehead. Those were daydreams. <laughs> of that she was certain. But she could almost, almost, picture them coming true. I'm not lost, Rhea insisted. The second mother shot her a look. And where are you from, wandering around in the dark and cold like this? Where are your parents? Always this question, Rhea thought, the spark of annoyance and a spark of shame stinging in her gut. Had this... Second mother seeing her daydreams about not-quite-parents in her eyes? Was that what this was about? 
She doesn't have parents, Iolo announced grandly, nearly tripping over the giant patchwork blanket she had gathered in her arms. When she said it, it didn't sound sad or defiant. It sounded like something that made Rhea interesting. The second mother's brow furrowed, and she gave Rhea a second pass. Her eyes caught two on her dress, not meant for doing work in, on her shoes, wrong for the weather, wrong for the woods, on her hair, which hung long and unbound and unsuited for work. Rhea knew she was a creature valued for her intellect, even at eleven. She understood, more in feelings than words, that she was also a creature valued for the power and the wealth she represented. Look what we have made. Look what we can maintain. All at once, the pieces, or something close to the correct pieces, seemed to come together in the other mother's mind, and she stood abruptly. That's it, she said, and caught the gaze of the first mother with a nod. First mother took up the call. All of you to bed to home now. If I hear from your parents that you did not go straight home, next time I will drag you by the scruff myself. The children groaned and laughed and did as they were told, clambering up and taking off in different directions. Iolo dumped the blanket on top of Rhea's head, having to throw a bit to make it land, and Rhea fumbled blindly in the dark until the mothers took pity on her and helped her find her way out again. Iolo shot her a slick grin. The first mother tugged on her ear. Iolo yelped and tried to look more respectful. Us too, I think, hummed second mother. To home. And for you, this was said towards her daughter, to bed. This can be sorted out much better indoors and away from this wind. Inside was cozy and, save for the sleeping loft above, about as big as Rhea's bedroom back home. Home. The mothers put on a kettle and made them all tea, then sat Rhea down at the table as Iolo hovered near the ladder up to the sleeping loft, trying to make it seem like she was actually about to go to bed. Rhea explained, as eloquently as she could, her role at the palace, her place with the kings, and the path she'd taken to get to the village. When they prodded her as to why she left, did they hurt you? Did something happen at the palace? Is everyone safe? Rhea squirmed and squirmed and squirmed until she finally blurted, shame burning her ears. I punched the prince in the mouth. Iolo, who was still hovering, let out a large, cackling laugh. First mother turned around sharply in her chair and hissed at her daughter. If you are not asleep by the time I count to five, I will write you a list of chores so long you won't see your friends for a week. The girl squeaked, turning red, and practically leapt up the ladder, bounding up the rungs and throwing herself onto the heap of blankets. First mother watched for a silent count of ten, twenty, making sure her daughter's face did not reappear, then turned back to face Rhea. Out of the corner of her eye, Rhea watched Yolo slide around and peek over the edge. Shh, she mouthed and stuck out her tongue. Rhea, for 
some reason, had to resist a blush. She turned back to the mothers. First mother had gone a bit green. Rhea couldn't be sure, but it almost looked as if second mother was trying to swallow back a grin that would have matched her daughter's. Well, managed first mother, finally. That is quite a predicament. Second mother, without hesitation and without any cloying notes of pity, asked, Will they hurt you when you go back? Rhea clenched her teeth so hard together she thought they might crack. Rhea clenched her teeth so hard together she thought they might crack. I don't... Would they? Would they? She and Cassian had both been hit before. They'd been stupid, made bad decisions, embarrassed the kings in front of dignitaries or the court or were too loud or too opinionated, especially Rhea, especially Rhea. She was starting to become more and more aware of the slight but important differences between her and Cassian. She was starting to understand what it meant to be special but not royal. Mostly, it meant lonely. Mostly, it meant that even if you were eleven and could swallow the stars whole, eleven still meant that you were at the mercy of adults. She deserved it. And she had been. Before. At eleven, Rhea didn't doubt this. She, she wouldn't have minded if Cassian hit her back. That felt fair. That felt even. That felt like a resolution to a fight between not-quite-siblings. That was the only way for such a thing to end without insidious resentment seeping in, seeping in, seeping into the relationship. If they hit her back, Instead of Cassian, that wasn't making things even, that... That was a punishment. I hit the prince. What happens is... Only fair. Second mother's mouth opened, lip curling a second away from snarling something. First mother? still green, put a hand on her arm. She shot a look to Rhea, and then a second one at her wife. Watch your words, dear. She turned back to Rhea. You are welcome to stay the night. It isn't safe to go out into the dark again. We will talk in the morning about... how to get you home. Or if you would like to stay here. None of this was right. 
Rhea's stomach twisted, but she had been raised to be polite and not question when adults gave her directions, so she finished her tea and accepted the clothing she was offered to change into for sleep, and climbed to the loft to lay down where Yolo was certainly, definitely not asleep. Rhea flopped down, back to the girl, and pretended not to feel when Yolo rolled over and kicked her. Hey. Downstairs, the mothers whispered in harried but hushed tones. I will not, second mother snapped, voice rising before her wife shh her, and they both fell back into quiet debate. Iolo kicked her again, and when Rhea didn't respond, shutting her eyes tight and pulling her quilt up around her ears, Iolo poked and poked and poked at her back until she finally rolled over. What? Rhea snapped. She was worried about tomorrow and was worried about the way the mothers were talking, because it was most certainly about her. Hey, Iolo said, still grinning sharply. Her eyes sparkled, almost as if she were... Pleased. Are you coming to stay with us? No. Rhea ground out and hesitated. I... I don't know. You should. Everyone else here is boring. You'd be more fun to talk to. Rhea ignored the very different way that turned her stomach over. I can't, though. I have a job to do, she finally said. I was chosen for something important. It it wouldn't be right for me to disappear. It wouldn't be fair to my teacher or the kings. It was the right thing to say. It was the way Rhea had been raised to think. But she couldn't help but let herself imagine, just for a second, what that could be like. Late that night, there came a knock on the door. Rhea pulled herself out of a warm, blurry sleep and stared through half-lidded eyes down towards the doorway to see Second Mother talking to two figures, mostly blocked, in the doorway. When she turned over her shoulder to glance up at the loft where Yolo and First Mother still slept beside her, Rhea finally realized who they were. Her teacher dressed for travel, a hand firm on the much smaller shoulder of Cassian. He stared plaintively up towards her at the loft. If she squinted, his mouth looked a bit swollen, but he didn't look angry. And the kings were nowhere to be seen. She finally registered that all three of them were looking at her, so she unwrapped herself from the blankets, shivering from the cold, and came to join them down on the floor. She hesitated before them, unsure of where to go, until Cassian broke forward, slamming into her and wrapping her into a hug. I was so worried about you, he said, squeezing tight. Why did you run? The words. Now that he was here nearly stuck in her throat. I'm 
sorry. Rhea managed. And then the dam had broken, and they poured out and out and out. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. His hug stiffened just a little bit. Then her teacher was kneeling beside the both of them, and tucked each of their hair behind their ears and cupped her hands on each of their cheeks. It's important that you forgive each other. You will face much in this life, and it will be easier if you do not forget to lean on the other. Rhea's stomach flipped. Cassian turned to her and said, Without hesitation, I forgive you. He was always better at letting go than she was. At least, when they were young. She didn't know what to say to that, so she pulled him back into another hug. Second mother still looked on with sharp eyes. To Rhea, she said, You still do not have to leave. If you are afraid of what they will do. Her teacher did not get upset at this. She was always better at staying calm than the rest of them. The kings do not know and will not know. She is safe with us. She nearly sagged in relief at that, barely hearing as her teacher reminded her to thank her host. Gratinok, she managed, and gave her very best bow. Tell your daughter goodbye from me, please. You didn't tell them? Rhea finally asked, in the language of the book, after she and Castine had climbed into the back seat of the discreet service cart among bags of grain and salt and settled in, wrapped together in a shared blanket as they were jostled back towards the palace. On the cart bench, their teacher sang quietly to herself an old Rysaean song that Rhea could almost trick herself into remembering from when she was a baby and still had parents. Them she didn't have to clarify, meant the kings. Cassian ducked his head. He smiled, a little shyly, and Rhea noticed with a start that he'd lost one of his teeth. Shame reignited in her chest, spreading to her face, spreading to her ears, before he seemed to take notice and shook his hair in front of his face. It was loose, he said instead. The tooth. I'd have been too scared to pull it out. Silence. And then? I almost did. Tell them. But it's like the Minstrana said. We have to protect each other. Before anything else. Before anything else. Rhea had agreed, and ducked closer to him to stare up at the stars. Before anything else. Rhea was fourteen the second time she ran away from the palace. Before anything else had lasted for two years, fighting kept to a minimum as it became the world against Cassian and Rhea. They learned how to climb out onto the roof without getting caught, and kept a map of the night sky they'd bullied one of the castle scribes into making on Cassian's wall. Thick, dark lines drawn between different stars to make constellations just their own. 
even though Rhea was no longer allowed to speak at dinners when matters of state were being discussed, Cassian listened to her thoughts when they were alone and shared them in her place the following night. She pretended not to care when Cassian was gradually, gradually pulled from lessons on language and literature with her and instead routed down to the arena, where he trained with Hildegard, the captain of the guard, a woman of few words and high expectations. She wasn't particularly fond of Rhea, though Rhea wasn't particularly fond of her, and called her a nuisance and a distraction when Rhea was just far enough away for Hildegard to gain plausible deniability at being out of earshot. They were harsher words for the few she spoke. That was fine. She'd heard him, stronger now for being a prince and so confidently himself, say back, she's my sister, she's not distracting me from anything. And that was enough. Hildegard was part of the everything else, part of the thing they were meant to be united against. And then her teacher died. It was sudden. Rhea did not get a goodbye or a warning or a burial day. She came to the library one day, did her lessons and walked Cassie into the arena as usual and came back for more lessons and more studying than the next. She and Cassian walked into the library, and Hildegard was waiting in place of her teacher. She pointed to Cassian and snapped her fingers. You are mine now. Come. What about lessons? Rhea asked, annoyed at how much her voice pitched up at the end of the sentence. Where is the Menstrana? She would not approve of this. She lectured to them both about the importance of history, of stories, of love. She did not think people were meant for war and nothing else. Hildegard did not pause as she continued her sweep towards the door, catching Cassian by the shoulder and pulling him along. Your teacher is dead. She slammed the door behind her, shaking the shelves of the library, and the space echoed like it never had when there were still two bodies to fill it. Rhea had been taught two languages and a thousand years of history and enough poetry to regale a court for a fortnight straight. She had never been taught how to grieve. So even though every part of her ached with this, pain so great it nearly sent her to her knees, Clutching at the desk nearest her, she could not lay out the process in a neat ten steps and so did not ever begin at all. That was the second night Rhea ran away. Where to go when the last time you left the palace you were eleven years old? The same place. If you are a creature of habit. If you are a creature searching for some semblance of comfort or consistency or home when one of two people in the world who loved you without condition or expectation were dead. The same place. If those two people had not betrayed you the first time and your three-year-old escape route still lay intact. The same place if you somehow managed to find your way back to the village you'd visited, not by the path you'd stumbled through in the woods, but by the hypnagogic cart ride you'd taken back with those same two people. Rhea did not quite realize where she was until she was on her knees, and 
The door was swinging open before her. Iolo had grown. Her hair was longer, the curls pulled looser by the weight of them all. She'd gotten thinner. Rhea remembered with a start the drought, the disaffected conversations between the kings during the hottest weeks anyone alive remembered. The queen, the livestock or die, it's getting harder to source meat. The king's response, add another lottery to make up the deficit, pull from one of the towns, someone will be honored to feed us. Twas the cooler days now. They had passed the longest day of the year. Rain came steadily once more, but it was clear that while she'd nearly forgotten the struggle, with her plate never empty and her wash basin always full, Iolo's body had not. Iolo's hand curved into a claw around the doorframe. You. I didn't know where else to go. Why didn't you stay? wasn't the question she'd been expecting. I... I had family. I had, I had duties to attend to. Her fingertips were losing their color. She was pressing so hard at the door. It was an odd thing to pick out among the thudding ache in her chest, but she couldn't stop staring. And now? I... I still have duties, Bria said, hesitating for only a second. That was enough. A flash of something like grief stumbled across Iolo's face and she softened. Iolo offered her a hand to help her to her feet. Stay until they call for you then. Inside, she was greeted after only a second of confusion by a noticeably older first mother. Like her daughter, the three years had not been kind to her. Her wife was not inside. Iolo took her out the back door and into their garden. There, a small, wizened sapling twisted and fought for life. It did not take Rhea long to understand. It did not take Rhea long to understand. Who you lost? Yolo said. Her voice shook. They are not gone. They are in the ground. They are in the trees. They are in the earth and air and sky. They are in the magic and they are in the mundane and they have been made anew. She swallowed. Hard. They are not gone. They are not gone. She turned and went back inside. Rhea stayed, staring at the place one of Iolo's mothers had been laid to rest, and finally began to cry. It would be two days before she returned back to the castle. First night, she couldn't sleep, staring over the edge of the loft towards the door, wishing that, like three years before, a knock would come to bring her home. As the night grew longer, 
she held out hope for Cassian. That he would not forget the promise they'd made to their teacher on the day of her death. The two of us against the world. The two of us against the world. Cassian did not come. And Rhea did not allow herself to miss that. Two. Rhea did not run away the rest of her 14th and 15th years, but she did an awful lot of leaving. She did not run, but she traded the palace for nights with Iolo, near dawns with Iolo, helping her mother, Madrugada, she'd learned was the name of the woman she'd long referred to as First Mother, with the cooking, the animals, the upkeep on the house. She did not run, but reached out to catch story nights, where Rhea took part in the plays for the children, and as Yolo leaned against the shadowed houses, rolling her eyes, she was able to pretend that there was not another life that she was running from. There was a slight but important difference between running away and running from, and Rhea took every opportunity to tell herself that she was running from. The difference was... Running from implied an eventual return. Just... While she was away, there was no isolation, no broken vows, no Cassian, no Hildegard, no rest of Cassian's friends, the boy named Thavius who inserted himself by Cassian's side, and the girl who seemed to make it a game to say less than Hildegard, no kings. Just this. Goats. Birds. The girl with sparks in her eyes and sharp teeth and a low and raspy voice. Shows. The village children she sword fought with sticks and a surrogate mother and Iolo on the night of Rhea's fifteenth birthday, pulling her back before they stepped into the firelight and kissing her more softly than she'd ever thought she deserved. She'd floated high on that kiss. Let Iolo delay and delay and delay her return until dawn, past dawn, at which point Madrugada and Iolo surprised her with small honey cakes and jam and kissed her forehead to wish her many happy returns. Rhea wandered back to the palace, long since having perfected moving through the trail in the woods and scaled the trellis up to her room. Cassian was waiting for her. Legs folded beneath him as he sat on her bed. In his hands he held a lumpy but painstakingly wrapped package. Rhea froze when she saw him, unsure of how he would react, but he wasn't angry. Maybe a little sad. Maybe a little distant. Rhea couldn't remember the last time they'd been alone. Before their teacher had died? Before everything had fallen apart. Happy birthday, he said, proffering the gift. I was here at midnight, but I was celebrating. Maybe her heart hurt a little bit at those two simple words, but he was the one that had left first. He did not deserve her pity, not on a day like this, for the taste of honey still sat thick on her tongue. 
with my friends. What friends? Rhea did not think Cassian meant to sound as dismissive as he did, but she still flinched. He opened his mouth, lips just starting to form a sorry before it snapped shut again. He cleared his throat. I meant... What people do you know outside of the palace? Just some people, Rhea said, trying to sound nonchalant, heart suddenly beating fast at the thought of having broken some unknown rule. She'd never been expressly forbidden from leaving as she did, but the kings had a bad habit of retroactive proclamations. She and Cassian, back when they were young, had both been on the receiving end of consequences created from them often enough to recognize the habit. She did not know how much Hildegard had made him forget of that childhood, and whether or not us against the world still applied. He was more prince, less brother, every time she saw him. It wasn't just the way he carried himself, or the newly forged sword, a year early, tradition was sixteen, that hung by his side. It was the things he said. It was the very makeup of his brain. Well, fifteen is a big age. I'm glad you were celebrating. He thrust the package out towards her. Speaking of, this is for you. Hildegard says everyone should be able to defend themselves. I know you don't know how to fight with a sword, so... He shrugged. I had it made for you. Rhea unwrapped the package. It was a dagger. Beautifully made. The blade engraved with stars. She searched for just a moment along the blade for the constellations she and Cassian had made at twelve. They were not there. The stars were randomly affixed in their positions. Thank you. Rhea said blandly, falling back on drilled politeness. As everything with Cassian these days, it shouldn't have hurt when things were not as they used to be, but all the same. He stood. Sorry to go. I have training. Many happy returns. And she was alone again. Without hesitation, Rhea set the dagger on her desk and climbed back out the window. Rhea was sixteen and a half when she began to run towards instead of from palace life. Iolo had gotten a job serving knights at a tavern nearby. Rhea liked to visit to tease her and leave tips at the other tables. She refused. Even during bad times, anything akin to charity, no money, no food stolen from the palace kitchens, no clothing that Rhea, taller and broader by Yolo, by no small amount had outgrown, but Rhea had gotten cleverer about leaving these gifts behind with time. She loved the music, both the hired bards and the ones that showed up uninvited and played unprompted. She loved being around this many people that were not stuffy or focused on hierarchy. She loved even as much as she complained about it, the cheap beer that Iolo snuck to her in her free moments. At sixteen, 
she especially loved the name of the tavern. Or, at least, the name as Rhea interpreted it. We choose our own destiny. Here she met the Frethin for the first time. Iolo caught her around the waist one night as she was leaving, a tray perfectly balanced in her free hand and murmured into her ear. Be back tomorrow night. There's someone for you to meet. Rhea's heart had skipped a beat, and she'd nodded. The next evening, at her usual table, a girl that couldn't have been any older than she was sat with two friends, weapons on the table and determination in their eyes. There was something compelling about the girl, the way she sat, the small row of braids that curled around her left ear, the sharp angles created by where she pulled her wavy hair away from her face. She tapped the edge of her twin swords as Rhea sat down and grinned. I have an offer to make you, Menstruana de Elhida. My name is Kalia. Back Again, Back Again is written and produced by me, Abigail Eliza. If you're thinking November is an awfully long time away, keep on stopping by on the first of every month for a bonus episode. Or check us out on Instagram and Tumblr at Back Again Podcast or on TikTok at Abigail Eliza Writes. I'm going absolutely nowhere. If you feel so inclined, you can donate to Back Again, Back Again on Ko-fi at ko-fi.com slash backagainpodcast, or click the link in the description where, if you leave an arguably PG-13 topic in the description box, I'll write you a terrible, terrible little limerick in return. Of course, you'll also win my eternal affection and gratitude. Our outro music is Nightingales by Pierce Murphy from the album To Japan and is licensed under an attribution license. The song was retrieved from freemusicarchive.org. Visit the description of this episode for full copyright information and a link to the page. Sound effect attribution, similarly, can be found in the episode description. If you've made it this far, thanks for sticking around. I'm so proud of you for making it through your worst days and finding happiness where you can. The light-soaked days are coming. You are loved. I hope you have a wonderful day. At least. The name as Rhea interpreted it. Interpreted it. Interpreted it. <laughs> God. Fuck. Your teacher is dead. Dead. <laughs>